Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Chris, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it, and welcome, everybody. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you can join us. Author in the Room calls, as you know, are designated or designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and clinical care. Uh, today, we have not a research article, but really a commentary, a summary of um, uh, the state of patient safety and systems in healthcare by Dr. Steve Shortell and Dr. Sarah Singer, and we're delighted to have them on board for that conversation. Uh, we will uh, have about uh, 10 minutes for them to summarize their commentary uh, and just a few more questions for orientation for myself, and then we'll move to questions and answers uh, or uh, yeah, questions by yourself and uh, discussion at about 25 minutes after the hour. So please uh, feel free to prepare uh, whatever comments or questions you have. We would like for these to be lively calls for you to have a chance to uh, interact with Dr. Shortell and Dr. Singer. Um, author in the Room calls occur, as you know, on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next call uh, will be on April 16th at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, and the author or the article for that call will be Comparison of Strategies for Sustaining Weight Loss, the Weight Loss Maintenance Randomization, uh, Randomized Control Trial, which was published in last week's JAMA, uh, March 12th. Today, our featured authors are uh, Dr. Stephen Shortell and Dr. Sarah Singer in their article, Improving Patient Safety by Taking Systems Seriously. We're delighted that so many of you could join us. There are several hundred lines uh, called in today with several people generally at each call, so it should be really a wonderful call. Welcome, Dr. Singer and Dr. Shortell. Thank you. Uh, as the moderator, it's my job to keep the uh, call focused on the application of uh, the article to the real-world setting, and we will try to do that. We will start off by having a, a quick overview of the call by Dr. Shortell and Dr. Singer. Uh, your participation is very important in these calls. It's a great forum for you to get clarification or to make comments on the article itself, so we look forward to that. One note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the iChai and JAMA websites as a streaming audio or podcast if you choose to go and listen to it later. All other uh, prior author in the room calls are available to you as well. Complete details and instructions are available at ihi.org. So let's get started. Please, again, let me introduce Dr. Uh, Stephen Shortell. Uh, Dr. Shortell is the Blue Cross of California Distinguished Professor of Health Policy and Management and Professor of Organizational uh, organi Organization Behavior at the School of Public Health in the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. He is also the Dean of the School of Public Health at Berkeley. Dr. Sarah Singer 
is Assistant Professor of Healthcare Management and Policy at Harvard School of Public Health and an Assistant in Health Policy at the Institute for Health Policy at Massachusetts General Hospital. Again, welcome Dr. Shortell and Dr. Singer. Thank you very much, Chuck. Uh, Sarah and I will do this uh, interactively, and I'll just uh, start off and saying a, a few words about what Sarah and I were trying to communicate uh, with, with this article. And I, I think really the central thought and idea was to try to look at this topic uh, from the patient's perspective. And they are really the only person that looks at or has the ability to reflect on the care that they're receiving across all of our different provider settings and, and so on. And, and the main point we're trying to make in this and get some discussion ideas and examples going is that uh, patient safety is a lot more than, uh, you know, uh, uh, computerized physician order entry systems, barcoding, trying to make individual uh, conditions more foolproof, uh, trying to develop a culture of safety, of mindfulness, of redundancy. All of that is important, obviously, but the challenge we face is all of that needs to be done within a delivery system that is just inherently fragmented that we all recognize. Until we deal with some of those underlying issues, it's going to be difficult to ensure that everyone uh, is given safe care and is given high-quality care, and therefore, what we're trying to point out is the need to address this issue systemically, looking at uh, the fact that many people have multiple conditions across the continuum of care, that errors occur at the handoff stage, that you need to really design a system of care that's going to increase the probability of safe practices occurring and decrease the probability of, of errors and mistakes. And uh, just to, to give an example that I ran across the other day, uh, and I think one of the ARC uh, releases where they summarize research, they're doing a recent study of pediatric outpatient medication errors. Uh, they, they found that often the majority of those are due to mistakes made at home, uh, in the patient's home, the support system, where they don't understand exactly what the medication does, how often it's supposed to be taken, uh, the dosage, and so on. And that's what we mean by the entire System, not just what was done or is being done in the hospital or, in this case, the pediatric outpatient department, but thinking about where is that going to be administered and do those people know about it. And so looking at the entire underlying system and how we can begin to foolproof that was one of the major themes we were trying to get across. Uh, let me uh, turn it over to Sarah, who can elaborate on some of that and highlight some of the barriers we point out in the article as well. Okay, thank you. Um, as, as Steve said, what we tried to do in the article, I think, was to provide some examples of what we mean by systems thinking, because I think... Uh, I think it is not uh, the concept that we were trying to convey, at least, is not so well understood. When people think about uh, systems thinking, they often think about it in contrast to uh, blaming individuals. Rather than blaming individuals, we should be focusing on improving the system, and that is certainly a part of it. But we also think that we need to think about systems much more broadly than that, to think about um, uh, 
systems that need to support being able to care for uh, individuals over the course of their lifetime across multiple uh, conditions, certainly involving many organizations uh, and over time. Uh, we did in the article try to provide some specific information about what we felt were some of the important barriers and some, uh, and in response to that, uh, some specific recommendations for what to do uh, to promote uh, systems-based care. So I'll, I'll cover some of that information. And um, by way of introducing our thinking about barriers, I think I'd characterize it by saying that uh, we believe that the barriers to systems uh, to cultures of systems, creating cultures of systems are are daunting. We acknowledge that, um, but hopefully that they're not determinative. And we categorized four different types of barriers. We classified them into strategic barriers uh, like the uh, financial and other incentives that currently don't promote patient safety, uh, cultural barriers, uh, principally thinking there about the functional silos that uh, that individual types of practitioners fall into and thereby making it really difficult to uh, form teams that can effectively work together. Uh, structural barriers, including the separation of, of departments, their planning and their budgeting within organizations that make it really hard to reach across uh, uh, across departments within a given organization, and then a whole list of uh, technical sorts of barriers that I think many of you uh, must be familiar with and can probably uh, add to our list. Uh, we didn't want to leave people with that, so we concluded our uh, commentary with a set of recommendations for promoting systems-based care, and I think uh, we all feel like the conversation here today would be uh, would be quite successful if what we can do is to create a conversation about your ideas, uh, the listeners' ideas for uh, other kinds of recommendations that uh, that uh, individuals, their organizations, and across organizations can do to promote um, systems-based care. We categorized uh, the recommendations that we make into um, two categories, uh, external uh, recommendations and, and recommendations related to internal uh, organizational kinds of changes. Among the external uh, recommendations that we make, we talk about uh, the need for creating shared financial and regulatory incentives across not only practitioners but across organizations to promote collaboration for safety. Uh, we talked about creating uh, more availability of public and comparative uh, safety information, strengthening the evidence base about uh, episodes of illness across care settings, uh, and finally about um, ensuring that there was both rapid feedback as well as trend information about adverse events so that organizations can learn from uh, from them. And we saw that as a potential role of the, uh, the federal patient safety organizations uh, that are currently contemplating and contemplated and being formed. Then on the internal side, uh, we also uh, identified a number of uh, potential uh, facilitators of systems thinking, uh, including you know, organizational leadership, leadership at uh, all levels, both formal and informal. Uh, I think that we really can't say enough about the need for uh, individuals within organizations that have uh, a, a role either of uh, formal authority uh, or informal authority to prior to demonstrate a priority uh, for safety within their organization and uh, more specifically to promote the idea of thinking systemically and working across systems. Uh, other things internally that organizations can do 
uh, include enhancing their electronic systems and the decision support systems that are made available to practitioners, uh, promoting effective healthcare teams, including uh, by making sure that they're well, uh, well trained in patient safety kinds of uh, uh, measurement techniques, making uh, data that supports uh, individuals and teams, uh, learning initiatives and improvement initiatives, uh, making sure that that data is available, and finally, um, to uh, address a uh, what we see as an emerging mismatch between the population and the healthcare workforce to uh, make sure that we are facilitating a continuation of the, the trust between physicians and their patients and other clinicians and their patients that's, uh, that's so important, and I should add teams and their patients. Uh, so that's the way we concluded the, uh, the commentary, and we are very much looking forward to the conversation about other people's suggestions and recommendations. Should I turn it back over to you, Chuck? That's great, Sarah. Okay. Thank you very much. I, I was on mute. Sorry about that. Uh, Sarah and Steve, thank you very much. Um, as we get ready to uh, move to some of the uh, some of the questions and or comments, uh, maybe a little bit of, a little bit more background would be useful. So we've we've been at this the quality movement in healthcare, if you will, since I would say it's fair to say it started in the late '80s. Uh, early 90s. Uh, certainly, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement was founded in 1991, which uh, many people use as sort of the uh, the beginning of the quality movement in healthcare. Uh, and here we are in uh, 2008, and you published a study saying about with the, with the title being "Taking Systems Seriously." And there's a bit of an implication there that we haven't taken systems seriously, or at least that we haven't achieved the results that we would have expected. Now you know, almost you know, sort of coming on 20 years later. Uh, so in uh, in I think some of the barriers you, you talk about are really pertinent and have been entrenched and difficult to get at. Uh, any thoughts about that? Uh, you know, here, again, here we are in 2008 with an article taking systems seriously. Uh, and I think a lot of people who have been involved in the quality movement uh, might bristle a little bit at that, at that title. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? A couple of thoughts, uh, uh, Chuck, and, and one way to think about it, and I was thinking about it the other day in connection with uh, another set of problems, but it gave me some insight into the issue and questions that we're addressing here. And I would ask listeners and all of us uh, to think of a triangle, just have a mental image of a triangle that I have found useful uh, in order to deal with this, this issue. And the triangle has at the bottom in one of the corners incentives and Sarah has talked about some of these. The other corner is something I'm going to call capabilities of people and organizations to respond to incentives. And the apex of the triangle here is accountability, performance measurement, transparency, and feedback on how well we are doing. And I think the issue of taking systems seriously is the huge challenge of aligning the set of these external incentives of beginning to not reward just for individual achievement and providers and so forth, but to reward for better results for an overall system of care and create shared incentives between and among hospitals and physicians and home health care settings in caring for various conditions. And Aligning those then, that alone is not enough. We've got to invest in the capabilities. And IHI and other organizations have been working so hard for so long and making some good progress on the capability side, equipping 
providers with the tools and the process reengineering and the human factors engineering and the PDSA cycles and effective teamwork to respond to the incentives, but often we have people working on those things and the incentives are not aligned. They don't reward better work. They do just the opposite. And then finally, a lot of it is we're shooting in the dark because we don't have good comparative benchmark data in terms of the transparencies and feedback on what we can do to get better. And so my point is, I guess, uh, increasingly public policy as well as internal practice needs to have that triangle standing up. We need to align the incentives, the capabilities to respond, and then in turn the performance metrics to give us feedback on how well we are doing. And that's where we're not quite yet at the tipping point of aligning uh, the triangle. Steve, I think that's a great way to think about it, and it makes really clear why we haven't quite gotten to the systems um, piece yet. I would think about it uh, another way as well, which is simply to say that when we uh, when the Institute of Medicine identified the large problem that we have of um, of medical errors in this country, there were so many things that needed to be addressed initially, uh, and many of those things uh, could be addressed given the incentives that we had, the capabilities that we had, and the accountability um, that existed. That many of those things um, took uh, took higher priority took higher priority, and so they got addressed first. There's been uh, an enormous uh, initiative around developing um, information systems, not to say that that incentives are are well aligned for doing that, but it was identified early on as a a priority that needed to be addressed. Many of the kinds of things um, that, uh, that can be worked on to address a particular population of patients with a single condition uh, is can build on an existing evidence base, and it's much easier to do that than to think about how do we consider patients with multiple conditions and their health over time and their treatment across organizations. It's just much uh, more challenging to undertake those kinds of changes, and there was so much uh, that needed to be done um, that was uh, simpler and um, uh, more uh, more feasible to try to address. And, and I think also, building on what Sarah has said, is, is we've learned a lot more what has occurred and is possible from other industries. And, uh, again, what's been achieved in airlines and others, and the analogies are not perfect. Health, delivering health care is, in many respects, much more complex, and we all recognize that. But I think there's been greater cross-learning stimulated by IHI and others uh, of what can be done by trying to apply and adapt some of the principles, for example, of the Toyota production and, and other tools from industry. And that's matured, I think, over the last five or six years. So we're in a very different place in that regard than, than 1991, which hopefully uh, makes us getting closer to perhaps some of the tipping point here. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, I know we're all anxious to hear from uh, those who are on the the line. So why don't we turn it over to Chris uh, to get people in the queue. Again, your questions or comments, thoughts uh, are really important to us. So uh, if you have one, please follow the instructions that Chris is about to give you, and we'd love to hear from you. Chris? Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. 
If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star then 1 on your phone. Standing by for questions. So please don't be shy about getting in the queue and asking a, a, a question or just providing a comment or an observation from uh, from your own work. So, um, Stephen, sir, I think your your response is I think right on target about you know here we are in 2008 and you you published this article. I think many of us maybe have angst that we thought we would we would be getting to a system solution sometime maybe maybe uh, around the you know around the turn of the decade, around 2000. Many of us saw, I think, the 90s as being the decade of educating healthcare about systems. And I thought we, I think we we had all had hoped that when we hit uh, 2000, we'd be uh, maybe beyond the education point, ready to get serious about making some, some uh, real systematic changes. And yet, while there has been progress uh, um, uh, here and there uh, in some components, we certainly have failed to see macro progress at the level of macro outcomes or at the level of of uh, uh, system costs. Are you optimistic that we're getting real close to that, that it's just a matter of timing before we do have the the industry capability and insights to get there, that we're just waiting for all the pieces to come together? Or are these cultural issues that you so well point out, are they so embedded that we really are going to have to step back and take a serious shot at those issues before we move forward? I, uh, I am afraid, uh, uh, Chuck, I, I line up with the latter. I think the cultural issues are huge. I think what we're doing is directionally correct, and I am cautiously optimistic that we will continue to make progress, but I think it's a marathon. It's not a 100-yard dash, and it's going to take a lot longer than all of us hoped for and certainly uh, a thought even might occur. And so uh, I, I think our challenge is scaling up, and here's our problem. All this great work that we do in silos and individual institutions, individual institutions we can point to great success, we have to remember we're trying to do this in a healthcare system in the United States that has about 750,000 individual practicing physicians that for the most part still, about two-thirds of them, uh, are practicing in very small kinds of practice entities or in solo practice. And that's great in many respects. It just makes it difficult do some of the shared learning work, keep up with medical knowledge, and we need more organizational forms. We have 5,000 hospitals. About two-thirds are in systems or networks, but many of them still behave in very autonomous kinds of manners. We have uh, you know, several thousand nursing homes and home health agencies. We have 50 different states. We have God knows how many rules and regulations. My point being we are not the U.K., we are not the Western European countries. We are not Canada. So what we're trying to do is lay all this improvement work and systems work uh, on a chassis, if you will, uh, you know, that is just inherently not very receptive to that. And until we begin to change, if you will, the chassis or the basic organization of the system, it's going to be difficult for us to make concerted progress and to scale up all the individual good work doing going on, you know, in some individual organizations. And I think, therefore, we have to get to the root cause of some of our problems uh, in order to take advantage and leverage some of the wonderful, you know, individual patient safety work and quality improvement work going on. 
I think Steve is is right on, and I'm afraid I I agree with him with respect to the uh, expectation for a quick solution. I think that a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, the uh, achieving of the vision or the movement toward the vision that that we're laying out is contemplated on the basis of the kinds of organizations uh, where there are so few in this country. So I think that the types of organizations that have the greatest potential for being able to achieve the kind of systems thinking that, that Steve and I are talking about are the ones that include within the same system uh, lots of different types of organizations and providers, multi-specialty, uh, multi-specialty uh, physician practices that have connections with hospitals and uh, intermediate care kinds of providers and, and that all of them work within the same organization. And there are very, very few of those kinds of entities within the country. And I think one of the one of the areas that I'm quite curious about now, and I think that might have the greatest potential for um, uh, for making a positive improvement, is to think about what can the organizations that don't look like that do to move in the direction uh, that Steve and I are, are recommending here. And I noticed uh, when you sent around the list of, of participants that there are um, many organizations that are independent uh, uh, entities uh, participating on the call, and it would be wonderful to hear from them about the kinds of strategies that they are uh, considering or employing to try to move in that direction. Exactly, and we really do want uh, folks out there to feel free to give us a call or to to hit the right buttons and get in the queue. Uh, we want to know if you have suggestions about what individuals and organizations can do to promote system-based healthcare. Your experiences in this regard would be very helpful to the conversation. Chris, is there anybody in the queue? Our first one comes from DJW Consulting. Please go ahead. Hi. You mentioned the incentives that currently exist that really don't, aren't really incentives to move it in this direction. And I do think a lot of it with the reimbursement policies, exactly, it's exactly true what you're saying. And how do you see that changing? Uh, could you just give us your name real quickly? Is this Deborah? Yes. Uh, so Deborah from DJW Consulting in uh, Illinois. Yes. Thank you, Deborah. Just to start off, Deborah, th thank you for the question and kind of opening the floodgate here for for questions. Uh, uh, specific examples that we can at least experiment with uh, are a bundled payment, where uh, let's take a cabbage for example, coronary bypass graft surgery. Uh, in a given market, market adjusted, you give 50K, let's say, I'm just picking that number out of an air, uh, to the hospitals and the physician jointly to manage uh, that, that procedure and that entire continuum of care for coronary artery bypass graft surgery. They share in the savings. They have every incentive to do everything they can to make sure there's not a hospital readmission, uh, that they're mindful and very watchful for infections and any safety concerns that might occur, and they manage it, you know, across the continuum. Related to that would be uh, episode, episode of illness-based uh, payment for certain kinds of conditions as well that would align the incentives between the physicians, nurses, uh, and, and the inpatient setting. So I think we need to move more towards those kinds of incentives uh, rather than currently if that bypass surgery patient is not well managed on an outpatient basis, maybe didn't understand the medications at, at discharge, they get readmitted, the hospital gets another DRG hit 
if anything, it's in their financial interest to have that occur. Not that anyone would do that deliberately, of course, but there's a disconnect between the silo payment of the hospital, the silo payment of the physician, and yet the patient experiences, you know, both both of those settings. So those would be examples that I think we need to move toward. Yeah, the only thing I would add to what, what Steve said, with which I uh, completely agree, is that I think it's helpful to compare it to what we tried to do with financial incentives under the managed care era. There was a lot of trying to promote uh, capitated payments where uh, organizations received a, a flat fee for, for caring for a population of patients. And uh, what it did ultimately uh, in many organizations that assumed the risk of t- capitation is it created uh, far too much risk on organizations that weren't capable of managing uh, care for uh, uh, all kinds of care for uh, populations. Sometimes they were small populations. And the difference here is that you can envision if there's a bundled payment for uh, one or a few types of conditions or or episodic patient, uh, I'm sorry, episode of illness payments uh, for a, uh, a set of uh, episodes. Uh, you can imagine uh, organizations stepping up to try to create systems around those kinds of bundles or episodes. So it gives them something to work toward as opposed to giving them something uh, that's just too big that they, can't, uh, that they can't really achieve all at once in one great big step. So I think that, that these kinds of incentive systems that Steve is talking about make a lot uh, more sense in the current environment and give organizations something uh, to work toward that is far more incremental and therefore feasible. Um, let me, I'll just play the devil's advocate a little, a little bit. This is Chuck Kylo. And the, um, um, one might say if we really need to take, uh, for the sake of our economy and for our communities, if we need to take 30 to 40% of the healthcare dollars out of the system, uh, 30, 30 to 40%, uh, what, choose a percentage, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be large. Some might say we should just stabilize spending, but at seventy percent of the GDP, that's a that's a big chunk. And some might argue that healthcare is hurting our communities at that level of spending. So let's say we have to reduce significantly. Are those kinds of financial incentives going to really create the tide that goes in the other direction for us to really be oriented on real cost savings at the level of the community, or do we need something else? Do we need something more stringent than that? If we're talking, Chuck, if I understand you correctly, how much we're spending on health care. Exactly. Right. In, in the U.S., 17% and going towards 20%, I guess, in another five years. Uh, I don't think it's going to be any one thing. Uh, people are fond of saying, of course, that if we could improve quality, reduce uh, improve safety, reduce errors, and so forth, we'll save a lot of money. And I agree with that, by the way. But it's not clear that all of that will be directly transferred to uh, to the consumer or lower premiums or what else we might put it into. Maybe we should put it into education, make sure every child in America can read by the age of five would be the best thing we could do in terms of the, the health status of our communities. But in any event, I think what we're also talking about is the huge need to look at these issues from a cross-sector perspective. And so if we're talking about health and how much we're spending for health, then we need to look at what's going on with our educational systems and schools, our transportation and our housing systems. And if you will, root cause public health has a huge impact on a lot of things and it would help keep people out of hospitals and out of doctor's offices, uh, quite frankly, over time. 
And so I think the issue that you pose is what is the responsibility of the delivery system, the hospitals and clinics in our communities and the listeners on this call to interface with the public health systems and the schools and other entities that produce health. And there's a lot of wonderful stuff going on, as we all know, but that has to be a part of this as well and not just what we can do inside the silos of our medical care delivery system. Good. Yeah, I, would, I would address your question um, also um, more directly by, by saying that uh, by agreeing with Steve, first of all, that you can get dollars out of the healthcare system in lots of different ways, and um, it's probably not advantageous to seek to get 30 to 40 percent out of the healthcare dollars by uh, creating uh, payment mechanisms that don't make sense just in order to get the 30 to 40 percent out. You can reduce the uh, payments that you make to uh, providers uh, if you can get away with it politically, which is, uh, as we've seen, has, has proven difficult to do. But providing an incentive that makes sense that also has the potential to gain some savings makes far more sense than setting yourself some sort of target and seeking to achieve it through the uh, payment mechanism that you create. Right. That's the draconian approach, and, and that would not be very beneficial. Exactly. Thank you. We do have another question from Mike Crossan of Cleveland Clinic. Please go ahead. Hi, I'm sorry if I was hitting the star one button too many times. <laughs> I wanted to get in here. So, um, hey, um, hey I, I come from industry. I've been in healthcare a couple of a couple of years now, and um, I, I'm, I'm looking at the pyramid you mentioned before, and and I have two two parts to this. Um, and by the way, the capability corner uh, part, I'm very much in agreement on. Um, from a system standpoint, I've seen over the years where incentives have really caused a lot of chaos in a system. Um, I guess they can work the wrong way. Um, I haven't seen them too good to use. And you know, for example, in a in a in a, an education setting where you know they have a, a certain benchmarks they got to reach, and they hear about counselors talking, you know, kids that are on the bubble, to, they talk them into dropping out of school, so they don't. You know they're not uh, they're not going to affect their numbers, and their numbers look better, and that's an unintended consequence. Of course, you want to help those kids get through. You don't want to ask them to leave, but if you're being incentivized to make your numbers look better, then you know people will do things uh, sometimes. And, and same in healthcare, where people transport really sick patients across state lines to go to other institutions because that sick patient might make a number look better or pay for performance. I've seen published articles on that. So th there are a lot of bad things that can go on with incentives and. Perhaps you could shed some light on some of the good ones that if there are such if there is such a thing, and then the other last comment I'd make on the accountability corner, I agree with accountability. One of the problems I've seen in industry and here though is that it's too easy for people to stop there. Everybody seems to take that easy way out. For example, um, it's a documented procedure. People know what they're supposed to do. If they would just do what they're supposed to be, do and be held accountable, we'd be done. And they pretty much stop their efforts there. When in reality, they really ought to be looking at that capability corner and looking at the process and trying to remove barriers and make things easier. Try to help them and design a process that is more capable 
and then maybe after some point hold them accountable. But I think they get that wrong. They just think because it's written down and in a procedure that somebody's going to follow it and they have to follow it, and that's that, and end of discussion. So I think that's kind of hurt us a little bit, too, that word accountability. Um, I'll stop there and wait for your comments. Okay, well, bo both points, I think, very insightful, and, and I agree with both of them. I'll just elaborate a bit. The, the incentives have to be done very, very carefully, and uh, I had the opportunity uh, last year to participate in the Institute of Medicine study on uh, performance measurement, and one part of it was a report on payment and incentives, and we came to the conclusion that these need to be, you know, the pay-for-performance programs need to be designed very carefully. There's a lot we don't know about these incentives. They're almost always unintended consequences. And what you have to balance is the, the benefit versus the potential negative unintended consequence, and sometimes they're difficult to anticipate. One major issue, of course, is the, the differences in severity of illness that you uh, raise and the need where possible to risk adjust the payments and the incentives. So you don't have the incentive to not take uh, the severely ill patient or simply the difficult to communicate with patient or the patient that's in a community that perhaps doesn't have the support systems and therefore isn't going to make you the provider look as good, uh, you know, in terms of your scores and so on. So the incentives have to be designed very, very carefully. A second point is a balance of incentives where you don't go overboard in any one area so you have a check and balances in a portfolio that tend to cancel the negative consequences out to some extent. So you might, for example, have a mix of payment to doctors that are based on some elements of, of capitation or bundled payment, but also some elements perhaps of fee-for-service, uh, salary, productivity, and, and it's an overall mix, so you kind of balance and you don't go all in one direction. The, the issue of accountability uh, is also, I, I think, on, on target. And uh, the issue there, in, in part, is not just in terms of doing what it is as you get the feedback, but, again, having enough <clears throat> stretch goals of what's possible and uh, benchmarking not just internally but on other uh, relevant comparisons that exist in your region or across the country, or simply listening to patients and what it is they're saying and what they think is possible. And I give as an example here the work that Peter Pronovos and colleagues have done in Michigan in intensive care units with the uh, central line infections. Some of them 5 6 7%. They thought initially bring them down to 1 or 2 would be pretty good. That was the national average at the time. And when you look at it, why shouldn't they be zero? And they set that as a goal, and you know what? They've achieved it. Zero percent, and they've been doing it now for 18 months. It hasn't gone back up. They have held the gain by doing what got codified as five relatively simple steps, you know, the checklist that a lot of people know about and Atul Gawande and others have written about now. But it really bears out your point of accountability, but they had needed to have the capabilities to do that. Well, as it turned out, you could reduce those infection rates with some fairly simple kinds of skills, making sure you wash your hands every time and do the appropriate kind of draping, you know, and so on. So I think in terms of incentives and, and accountability, all of that has to be thought through. It doesn't just occur naturally. You can't do it in a simple-minded way. Um, I just wanted to to add a little bit uh, to Steve's comments on the incentive side. Uh, another way of thinking about it is that, um, given what you've said, um, 
you have uh, attested to the fact that incentives actually do provide a pretty powerful tool for changing people's behavior, and that's a really good thing. And if we can combine that with the care and the balance that that Steve talked about, uh, we can actually have the potential to cause some real uh, change uh, for the in the positive direction. The other thing to think about is that we've got a lot of incentives in our system now, and uh, our commentary, but I think you know lots of people have talked about the way that the current set of, insist, uh, of incentives in the system uh, create a lot of negative consequences as well. So what we're trying to do is create better incentives, not necessarily uh, perfect incentives, because we know that unintended consequences uh, are hard to avoid, but we can certainly work to improve the incentives that we have in the system today. And the, the way that I think about accountability, uh, also just to add um, to Steve's comments, is, is rather than um, thinking about it being okay to say, if I provide you information about what you're supposed to do, I'm going to hold you accountable for doing it. Instead, I like to think about accountability as uh, providing the information that will allow organizations and teams uh, and individuals to continuously learn and then to hold them accountable for using the information for continuous learning. So that's just another way of thinking about it. Well, there certainly is a lot of meat in that conversation about the balance between accountability and incentives, and a whole lot of discussion about accountability to what, and maybe we'll come back around to that with uh, subsequent uh, comments that, that uh, participants have. Chris? Thank you. Our next question comes from Bonnie Salehi of St. Michael's Hospital. Please go ahead. Um, hello. I'm calling from St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, so perhaps have a slightly uh, different perspective on this conversation. I am enjoying the discussion. Um, I think um, when we look at this whole issue about system thinking um, and supporting care for individuals uh, over many situations and throughout a lifetime is, is um, an interesting approach, and I think it's one that we're going to see more and more as time goes on. I guess um, when we look at the triangle that you've been talking about, uh, and we talk about accountability in particular. Um, in my view, when we talk about accountability, um, we, we're accountable, the questions arise, we're accountable to whom and for what, for what outcomes, and who determines whether these outcomes are, are appropriate or significant or, or right, whatever the word might be. So I guess um, we can take an internal view or an external view. Um, and ultimately what my question is, I believe that patients will have a significant role in this uh, in the future. And I believe they will even lead this, um, this idea of system health. Uh, so I guess I'd just like your comments on, on where you think patients fit into this. Hey, Bonnie, hang on the line, too, because we may want to engage in some of this conversation. Steve or Sarah? Yeah, have Sarah uh, take the lead on that one. Um, I'm glad, Chuck, that you invited Bonnie to stay on the line because I'd love to know uh, if she's got some examples um, in Canada about how she thinks a about that. But uh, the comments were extremely helpful, and I think uh, she raises a number of um, really uh, important questions around accountability and around uh, the patient's role. I do think that if you take what we tried to do in our commentary was to take a uh, a patient's perspective and to think about 
from a patient's point of view, what is the kind of care that they feel ought to be delivered? Uh, And from a patient's perspective, what they care about is their overall health over their lifetime. And so she's absolutely right that the patients need to be uh, playing a key role in uh, creating creating the accountability for uh, for doing that. Uh, one specific uh, suggestion that we had with respect to the patient's role is to use them um, much more actively as a source of information about the kinds of um, uh, about the kinds of uh, things that need to be uh, improved with respect to care that gets delivered uh, within an, uh, an accountable system of care uh, because uh, it is their perspective that needs to um, be addressed much more often than um, than it uh, has been and they can be they and family members can be a real wealth of information about uh, what what's gone on and an untapped source of information. Just to build on what Sarah has said, Bonnie, as well, you raised the question, accountable to whom? And I think there's there's three major entities there for us to think about. Uh, um, as Sarah has indicated, ultimately it, it has to be and should be the patient that needs to hold the system accountable. But the way in which that operates through uh, pragmatically is accountable to the payers, let's face it, uh, uh, they're they're going to you know demand accountability if they're creating these incentives and so forth, but the real missing link in my view, and I absolutely could be wrong, so I'm just expressing my opinion, uh, is the governance of our institutions. Uh, so at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, uh, I don't know if you have a board of trustees and and so forth, but in our U.S. hospitals, too few of the trustees of America's hospitals are really holding uh, the organization accountable for getting zero defects in the areas of patient safety and quality. It's, it's, again, there are certainly exceptions, and it's beginning to change, uh, but it's up to the governing board as the stewards of the assets are ultimately accountable for what goes on in that institution. And so that would apply, however, not just to the hospital, but you see who governs, who holds the nursing home accountable. Uh, who holds the solo physician practice accountable or the two-person partnership or the small medical clinic or Kaiser Permanente or the Mayo Clinic. Now, those larger entities have board of trustees, et cetera, and they demand this kind of information in the boardroom, and they go over it with a fine-tooth comb. But those entities, understandably, understandably, aren't there for a lot of the other delivery settings, and that's part of our problem. Now, many of us in the U.S. have the perception that in Canada, or obviously many of the European countries as well, that the level of social accountability is very different. Bonnie, would would you reflect on that? What are your What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a different social context that you may have that people feel differently about that obligation. Is that Is that true from your perspective? I believe that is true. Um, I think um, providing uh, universal health care. Uh, within our country is actually part of our value system. So I would agree that there, there, there probably is quite a different perspective. I would just like to comment on um, the previous gentleman's uh, question. Our board of directors at our institution, and I would, well, I'll just speak for us, uh, they're very active in, um, in accountability and in um, looking at incidents and following them up. So it is, it is a, an, an act 
a very important uh, activity here at the hospital. We also have national initiatives where we share this information so that um, situations that occur that might be uh, less than optimal for patients um, may be prevented in other parts of the country because we've shared information with them. Um, I want to just say two quick things and then I'll let somebody else speak. Um, our accreditation process um, in the country is changing, accreditation process for hospitals. We now um, follow a patient uh, from wherever they enter the healthcare system, whether it be through emergency or through an elective surgical port or wherever it might be, and follow that patient from their admission throughout their stay in the hospital and into their community uh, to the points where they're receiving the supports they need within their community to uh, be successful in achieving optimal health. Um, so that is a major change. And when the accreditors uh, carry out their processes, they're, they're auditing, they're talking uh, primarily with direct patient caregivers rather than um, administrators. So it's a, a very different approach. And the last thing I wanted to talk about or mention to you was to give you an example of um, patients um, leading initiatives uh, around um, patient safety. Uh, we are initiating what we call our Simulvice initiative, and it is around hand washing, uh, which one of you gentlemen mentioned. Um, and what we are doing is um, we are asking our patients to find us to wash our hands so that we're giving them the authority and the autonomy to um, improve our behavior on their behalf. That's wonderful. You know, um, it uh, it teaches us once again how much we have to learn from from other nations. I, I like, in particular, the um, uh, the accreditation process that Bonnie described. I think that there uh, may be something there for our accreditors to to think about in terms of uh, creating an incentive through regulatory means to try to promote systems thinking. It's really uh, wonderful. I'd love to hear more about it. Uh, also, I wonder, is there anybody on the call from the Joint Commission on accreditation of hospitals? Perhaps not, but that's actually an actionable step, Chuck, that could be followed up as a result of this discussion today. Absolutely. And um, uh, uh, as, we, as we get ready to sort of approach the end of the hour here, Steve and Sarah, what are your recommendations uh, for... Uh, the organizations, the individuals and their organizations who are on the call, what are, the, what are some specific steps that you would want them to take, based on your thinking here, to, to move us towards much deeper systems thinking? M many of us cannot control the financing, financing system, obviously, but there are a lot of things we can do in our organizations, uh, and you've pointed to some of them in your paper. Would, would you care to summarize them for us? Sure. Do you want to start, and I'll add a couple. I'm not sure it's really possible to to summarize all of them because what we included in there was was a long list. But if I were thinking about an individual within an organization and what that individual uh, might be able to do uh, today or tomorrow, um, uh, you know, one recommendation I would have is to uh, request request information. Uh, uh, to, to uh, request information that would allow uh, them to compare themselves to uh, other providers that allows them to look um, uh, at their patient's uh, progress, uh, not just 
you know, as they're leaving their unit, but across, you know, after 30 days, uh, et cetera, uh, and to, to create the demand that will encourage the organizations to provide it. Uh, so that's just one c- concrete example of, of an idea. Just building on, on that is just four quick things. Prioritize, in other words, pick a problem inside your organization where there's room for improvement, and it's really important and it's possible. Okay. Secondly, focus on that with an awful lot of just laser-like energy. Measure, make sure it's measure all aspects of it. This is the information point that Sarah was raising. And then share. It's almost applying the PDSA cycle approach, but in an area that's really meaningful. But I must say, we can you know give the, those suggestions. And unless you are now working in an organization in which the culture, the culture of that organization is going to support everything we've been talking about in this call, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to do anything. And so we go back to, to the culture, again, of the organization, what it's trying to achieve. And what about that culture? Uh, any thoughts about how uh, individuals ought to prompt their organizations to think more deeply or to act, act more significantly on the culture issue? My experience is you have to build coalitions where you don't do it yourself harping to whoever you might be harping to, but you do it along with others that have credibility and voice and political influence. And so do it in tandem with with others, whoever those might be. And then you can begin to get get people's attention. And you have to find out what really matters to your governing board, what matters to the administration, and put it in terms that they understand in terms of what they think they're going to get rewarded for. And that's the way to insinuate the safety agenda, the quality agenda on their agenda, if safety and quality aren't really seen as absolutely central to what the organization should should exist for. Right. So it's really building the uh, kind of political coalition inside the organization. Mm. I Great. think the coalitions are incredibly important, but I would I would also um, suggest to people that they shouldn't under underestimate their role as a leader within whatever group of individuals with whom they work, and that by uh, by their own example they can begin to. Uh, shift the culture of their organization. Uh, uh, very, very helpful. Very helpful. Let's let's try to squeak in one more quick comment or question. Chris, is there anybody else in queue? Yes. Our next question comes from Kristen Myers of Salem Hospital. Please go ahead. Uh, this is actually Dan Gregg with Salem Hospital. In your article, you talked about structural barriers and the collection of departments being a barrier. I'm just curious, have you seen any models around the country that don't Organize themselves by departments that overcome that barrier. Um, go ahead, Steve. Yes, Sarah. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say I'm I'm not sure that it's necessarily uh, important to uh, uh, to change the departmental structure, but it it. Uh, is very likely to be important to change the incentives of departments so that they're not just thinking about their departmental bottom line, that they're thinking about the organizational bottom line, and more importantly, that they're thinking about the bottom line for the patient so that they don't, they don't make irrational decisions on behalf of their patient or the organization um, in order to uh, improve the uh, bottom line or performance uh, metric of their department. That's what we meant, I think, in the article. Very helpful and a, and a pertinent question to end with. That is, unfortunately, all the time we have left for questions. Uh, Dr. Shortell, uh, I really appreciate your um, your participation, and Dr. Singer as well. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Nice to those to on the line, just a reminder that the next author in the room call will take place 
on uh, Wednesday, April 16th. The article is Comparison of Strategies for Sustaining Weight Loss in the March 12, 2008 uh, issue of JAMA. Just a reminder that uh, Author in the Room is a sponsored program by JAMA, the Journal of Medic- the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. We're delighted that you have that, had the opportunity to join us today. Thanks uh, to all for being a part of Author in the Room. Good day. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may all disconnect.